This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. to episode 66 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, also joining me today. Uh, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? All going pretty well, Michael. Semester's almost over? It is. I actually gave my last final yesterday morning. Oh, so. your semester's over. It is, Man. it is, our, yeah. Our finals are next week. But you started, also, he started a week before us, too. Yeah, I started That's classes true. the first week of August, I believe. Oh, two weeks before us. Yeah, so. Well, so jealous. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't jealous in August, that's for sure. No, that's true. That's the the uh, jealous slash non-jealous voice you hear is David Grubbs. He is a professor of <laughs> English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. How's it going, Professor? Um, it's, it's going well. Um, okay. well, I'm doing pretty well. Um, haven't given my last final. I haven't even designed my final for <laughs> Britlet one yet. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I, yeah, fortunately I've taught that before at a completely different place. So I can just kind of repurpose the one that I've got, um, which that that'll that'll be fun because some of them did very very well on in it and the rest of them did not well at all. So this I'm, uh this is the first year I've ever had to design a final and it was a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I find it really interesting, really fun to try to come up with good questions. I love uh, I love grading them. I love assigning grades in general <laughs> and I, I have a spreadsheet that is color coded and I like it when the colors change one direction or the other. So I'm looking forward to that. Except as I mentioned last week, I'm stupid enough to have everything due the final week when I'm leaving in the middle of the final week. So I don't know when I'm going to grade all that stuff. That was not smart. I should just give everybody an A, right? Like it's a teacher <laughs> ed course. You sound like one of them now. <laughs> Well, they, they do pay my salary. They're, they're the customer. The no, that's, that's what mine tell me. Whenever I'm like, oh, yeah, grading and stuff, they're like, you just gave us all A's. Just all A's. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's still funny after Careful all Careful with that joke. It's got whiskers on it. <laughs> do we have mm. any listener feedback? Uh, yes, we do. Let me pull it up here real quick. Uh, from Doug. We got, right? Yeah, we got a message back from Doug. It is fairly lengthy. Um, do you want me to go ahead and read it, Michael, or just summarize? I will let you use your discretion. All right. Uh, 
just to summarize, he appreciates that we did the environmentalism episode. Uh, he likes the fact that we took a fairly balanced view on it. He thinks that perhaps we took a slightly slanted position on modern environmentalism. He said that the voluntary extinction folks and the happy, shiny nature people are certainly a segment of modern environmentalism, but certainly don't represent the whole. Uh, and finally, he recommends a book, Loving Nature, Ecological Integrity, and Christian Responsibility. Um, and, you know, he says that, you know, it's a good one because it doesn't focus on the hot topics of the day, but actually digs into the big questions surrounding environmentalism. So, uh, Doug appreciates what we did, and he recommends the website creationcare.org as a place where uh, Christians are doing environmentalism and avoiding the pagan stuff. I thought, I thought it was interesting that he says Christians should say creation instead of environment. I got, I got, yeah, I got yeah. to thinking about that, and if you, I mean, the the term environment does kind of assume we're just organisms moving around in a petri dish. Mm-hmm. And see, I I don't see it as holding that assumption. I I hold it as I I see the word environment as being opposed to specimen or isolation rather than opposed to creation. Basically, mm-hmm. context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, you know that so it's a it's a systemic way of thinking rather than a a an atomistic way of thinking. But again, that's, you know, that's It's, a, it's opposed to multiple things in truth, right? Yeah. Like all words. Oh, are. sure, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, I I was just thinking about, you know, the primary connotation it holds when I hear or say the word. Sure. I well, fact, I do I, kind I, of blame never, you though, yeah. Nathan. Say it again now? I said I do kind of blame you though, Nathan. Um because the way you framed the uh, the question when we t- were talking about the politics of environmentalism is what gets both sides so riled up. Yeah, yeah. So a- anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm uh, I'm sorry. I, I knew kind of as we were having the conversation that we were basically coloring both sides with like the terrible three crayon box that they used to give you at like the Shoney's when you were oh. a kid. <laughs> and you were like, why on earth do these heathens not have a yellow? Uh-huh. I, I was even too focused on the color. American flag planted in my hamburger. Ah. Uh, okay. You know, we went to Shoney's, my wife and I, a few years ago, and I asked them if they still put the American flag in the hamburger. And they said no, but then the waitress went into the kitchen and brought me, like, 45 toothpick American flags. Nice. Which I put in my hamburgers at home for several months. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, I think that started, and I don't know, if we have a Shoney's historian listening, I'd love to hear the the, the rest of the story, but I, I think that started after the moon landing. Huh. Ah. Okay. Because it shows up in um, Rabbit Ray Dukes by Updike uh, as a moon burger, and, and I thought, well, I wonder if that actually lasted until the late 80s when uh, I was a kid and ate, uh, ate hamburgers with American flags planted in them. Huh. And they were still putting flags in there, even after they fought, forgot why they were putting flags in them. Uh, you, know, you know, the uh, the <laughs> the the sign outlasts the signified. Yeah, true that. 
Well, our topic today is one we stole uh, rather shamelessly from Westminster Seminary, California. They have a podcast called Office Hours, and all semester they have been asking their faculty what five books they would bring with them to the desert island. Just to tip our hand, it is as we mentioned, the end of the semester. Grubbs and I are having working full-time jobs for the first time, and uh, we don't have time to come up with uh, one of our deeper <laughs> topics, and so from from now on, at the end of the semester, you can expect lighter topics like this one that require very little research. Yeah. On the other hand, we hope you'll find it interesting. Now, the ground rules are that uh, number one, the Bible is given, so you don't have to uh, you don't have to include that because you already have it. And if you want it, you can have it in whatever translation or original text or whatever you want. Uh, mm-hmm. um, Yay! The other ground rules: uh, anything you can find in a single volume counts. So I, I know I have several books that are actually more than one book put together, and I'm counting them as one volume, and uh, that is allowable. And then finally, the three of us decided that we are going to have some sort of communal library on this hypothetical island, which means none of our books repeat and all of us can use one another's. Mm. See, I'm kind of imagining this little, this tiny little three-island archipelago archipelago anyway i've never said that word aloud um island chain where we can sort of conveniently hop on the hop on a log and paddle over to each other's islands and share books i i think my trying to paddle over on a log would end in tears (laughs) (laughs) or with or with one of your books being very wet (laughs) yeah just maybe we can just throw it across (laughs) cool all right, sorry. Now so, two swallows uh, held a strip of bark between them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with uh, let's start with Nathan Gilmore. Nathan, what are your five books? And uh, give us one at a time, and we'll talk about them, and then you can give the next one. All right, these are in the order that I spotted them on my bookshelf in my office at Emmanuel College. So, so uh, that's another, not... that would be another good uh, end of the semester topic. How do you organize your office bookshelf? Oh, very poorly here recently, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but my number one is uh, John Milton, Complete Poetry and Major Prose, edited by Merritt Hughes. Uh, it is the edition of Milton that I bought my first year of graduate school at University of Georgia. Uh, and it has been a companion to me. I try to read Paradise Lost once every year. Uh, and just wonderful, wonderful poetry. You know, the prose uh, is interesting in its own right for historical reasons, uh, but I mean, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, Samson Agonistes, these are the texts that I keep coming back to. Nathan, would you organize your Desert Island reading schedule based on his recommendations in of education? Oh, I don't know that I would have that many books, first of all, but I, you know, <laughs> I mean, he has all of his young Brits reading, I mean, just reams and reams of, of ancient texts uh, in the original languages, of course. But uh, I certainly would bring books with me that I enjoy reading and rereading, and those are the ones that have, have populated my list. David, you got anything to say about Milton? Surely you do. I, 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 well, when, when I was formulating my list, I'll go ahead and tip one of my cards, if not one of my books. When I was uh, selecting books, I was thinking of, you know, if I'm all alone on, the, on an island with only books as companions, who am I going to pick to have conversations with? 
Mm-hmm. And Milton and I don't track on every single little thing, but that just makes him an interesting guy to talk to. And he's got opinions on so daggum many different things. Mm-hmm. And he said so many things well that, uh, yeah, I think, I think he's, he, he's a good guy to bring to your island. Um, especially if you have your Bible with you, because then a lot of those conversations will result, will revolve back to the scripture. Yeah. Uh, and you can talk with Milton about the Bible. That sounds like a pretty decent deserted island to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're you're getting it mostly for the uh, the poetry, Nathan. Yeah, I really am. I mean, I you know I have done research on the prose, and I've actually written papers on the prose. Uh, but when it comes to, I have a couple hours to read. Uh, I mean, it's almost always Paradise Lost or Paradise Regained. I'll turn to. Mm-hmm. Can can you recommend because I I know most of our listeners if they haven't read Paradise Lost they need to, but most of our listeners are probably much less familiar with the uh, with the with the prose. Can you give a recommendation for a a good place? To yeah, start I, with can. The prose I, I can. I can. I can. First of all, I mean when you read Milton's prose, block out some time to read it because it is slow going. Uh, he writes <laughs> in these grand majestic quarter page sentences. Uh, but I mean, among his prose works, I mean, the ones that I find most interesting, the one that, that Michael mentioned on education is a fascinating and, and rigorous course of reading for the young men of Britain. Uh, I would recommend the tenure of Kings and magistrates. It is, you know, one of the early arguments against absolute monarchy, against hereditary monarchy and for, the right of the people to overthrow a monarch who has become unjust. Uh, so, I mean, you know, like I said, it's slow going, but the argument is fascinating. Um, yeah, those two are really the ones that I would hold up first as most interesting. I always say Areopagitica. Yeah, I, I, and that one is good as well. But I guess you're uh, not going to have anything but a uh, fugitive and cloistered virtue on a, on a deserted island, are you? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your second pick, Nathan? All right, my number two pick uh, is the Riverside Shakespeare. Uh, again, it is the edition that I used in graduate school. It has all of the plays of Shakespeare as well as the poetry and some very good introductory essays. Uh, <laughs> Shakespeare. I mean, you know, I, I one of my dissertation chapters is on Shakespeare. Uh, you know, his tragedies are, are nothing short of some of the great texts that I have read. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Shakespeare's characters really, uh, the way that they interact with each other, the way that they interact with the audience, uh, just have such a, a great sense of, and I'm going to use a, a new historicist sounding phrase here, unfortunately, because it's the only vocabulary I've got. Uh, but they're just great examples of how to construct your existence in the world. Uh, given the circumstances you've got, what do you speak? What do you think? What do you do in order to live a full existence? Now, have you read all of uh, Shakespeare's plays? Uh, there are a couple that I haven't. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the titles of the ones I haven't, which is always harder than thinking of the ones I have. I don't think I've read... <laughs> so uh, no, I've read Cymbeline. 
uh, shoot, the, the the two gentlemen of Verona. Verona. Verona, thank you. That that's one that I haven't gotten to. Mm. I don't think Katie likes that one. All right, well, but there hey, you go. <laughs> but hey, you'll have time on your island. Yeah, there you go. I might, I, I might finally get to that one. You can develop an appreciation for the forgotten Shakespeare. There you go. <laughs> I've never read any of like the narrative poems. Mm. Yeah, I, actually, a good chunk of my dissertation chapter on Shakespeare is on the rape of Lucrece. So, you know, it is a fascinating, like you said, Michael, a narrative poem. Uh, it is really sort of a laboratory in which Shakespeare asks, you know, uh, when we look at the classical ancients, what can we say about their capacity for goodness, their capacity for self-sacrifice, their capacity for truth? Uh, and the answer, you know, as it always is in Shakespeare, is a very, very complicated answer. It's one that always uh, remains very aware of the fact that, that Shakespeare is reading through Christian lenses, uh, but still he acknowledges that the characters he's writing about are not themselves Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for the purposes of my dissertation, I mean, it just made an ideal text for those questions of ethics in the early Protestant era. So It, it sounds a little like the, the kind of layers of theodicy in King Lear. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, uh, which I, I, just, I just love to teach that book because of those layers because these are ostensibly pagan characters who nevertheless are brought into being by a man living in a Christian era if not I, I mean nobody knows anything about Shakespeare's religion really so, right. so I hesitate to call him a Christian but he, he at least lives in a Christian era and so you see the, the Christian God kind of sticking his head out from behind the pagan clouds oh sure sure and, and he's just immensely biblically literate I mean you read yeah, through yeah. his tragedies and I mean the echoes of the Geneva Bible are just everywhere mm-hmm so you bring in a Geneva Bible with you? Oh, uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. That's not one of my five. You forget I, I... Nathan can read Greek. Dude. Oh, that's right. That's he doesn't right. need a translation. Oh, yeah. I, I think I still might need a translation, but uh, that was given to me in my in initial parameters, so I did not make the Geneva Bible one of the five. <laughs> okay. Should I go on to number three, Michael? Let's hear it. All right, number three, I would bring along uh, the Divine Comedy of Dante, uh, yeah. translated by John Ciardi. Uh, it is <laughs> what? Sorry, I, I, yeah. Did I mispronounce that? No, 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 no. I, I, I for whatever reason, it, it just suddenly struck me as funny early in the morning that that you had a particular favorite translation to bring with you. I don't oh, know I why. do, I do. I, <laughs> I don't know why that struck me as funny. It just did. Strike it down to the well, fact and I, that... And I, I read yeah, the comedy in a couple different translations. Yet. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the John Chiardi translation, it's the one I've been reading in the summers here lately. Uh, just a very lively translation. He sort of threads a middle ground between Dorothy Sayers, who tries to do Terza Rima in English, uh, yeah. which I, I think is a meets with mixed success, I'll put it that way. And then it's somewhere between that and Mark Musa, who basically does prose lines, but separated by carriage returns. Uh, so, I, you know, like I said, that sort of middle ground is what I like. As far as Dante goes, I mean, he is 
a classical education every time you read the comedy. Uh, you know, you, you get Florentine history, ancient Roman history, ancient Greek history, uh, history of Christianity. You get philosophy, theology, poetry, all kinds of groovy stuff. Uh, and besides that, I mean, it is a wonderful exploration of the travel of the soul from perdition through purgation all the way to redemption. And I mean, for me, you know, what keeps me coming back to that poem every summer uh, is the fact that, first of all, I learn something new every time because something in the vast network of classical references stands out to me. And then beyond that, you know, just the the pilgrimage of the soul just resonates with my own soul. Mm. See, my concern with having that is that I would so lack the context for those, especially medieval Italian political references, that I would be lost without um, an additional book to explain the Divine Comedy to me. What are the footnotes like in that translation? John Ciardi's footnotes are extensive, they are readable, uh, and best of all, they are right there with the chapter instead of being end notes that you have to flip to the end to find. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Attention publishers, yeah. no more end yeah. notes. Oh, seriously, seriously. Can we all just switch yeah. to Chicago-style citation in general? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I'm indifferent to MLA or Chicago, away. but... <laughs> what would you say? But, that, but then, yeah. I, I'm indifferent to MLA or Chicago, but I've written a master's thesis in each, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, what's your fourth book, Nathan? All right, number four. Uh, this one, I'll admit, I'm cheating a little bit. Uh, it would have to be either some sort of compendium or it would have to be a very, very thick volume, but it would be the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, again, this is a book uh, I've read maybe 15% of over the course of my brief career uh, on a desert island. Perhaps I would have time to get through more of it. Uh, Thomas is one of my favorite theologians largely because of the spirit of what he does, the content of what he does, like, my, like David was saying. Uh, I often disagree with him, uh, but the spirit of what he's doing, taking the best philosophy that he has at his fingertips and bringing it to bear on questions of faith that approach to the intellectual life is something that I definitely aspire to myself. Uh, I definitely enjoy reading it when I watch Thomas do it. Uh, and like I said, I, I just think that, you know, every time I've sat down to read Thomas for any extended period, I've learned immense things, even if I am learning by means of disagreement. Uh, so on a desert island, I could definitely spend some time reading some Thomas. And it'd be good that you'd have nothing to distract you because that is hard reading. And see, it's funny, I, I guess because I've read so much 19th and 20th century German philosophy, Thomas just seems very, very lucid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I, I'm, having, I'm having to teach part of the Summa for my uh, intro to philosophy class next semester. And, uh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I'd never read it before, and I, I, I must have read 15, 20 page, the 15 or 20 pages that were excerpted in a book, and man, you're, you're right, it's not as difficult as Heidegger, it, and it's not so much difficult as it is just very, very dry. Oh, it is, it is. I mean, I, yeah, not a lot of examples. <laughs> mm -hmm. At least Heidegger has the hammer. Yeah, yeah. 
Although, again, I mean, because I've read Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, Thomas is just smooth reading after that. Mm. Hegel Hegel doesn't even have a hammer. <laughs> well, and probably what's being excerpted in a in a uh, in a theolo- or sorry a, a philosophy textbook is probably not going to be uh, some of the more uh, it's probably going to be more one of the sections that's more focusing on how uh, Aquinas sort of predigested Aristotle for Christians. Uh, not yeah. not really. Um, no. The book I'm using is Forrest Baird Philosophical Classics. Baird happens to be a philosophy professor at Whitworth University. Mm-hmm. Um, he he gives a, a large part of it is the proof of God, uh, the five proofs of God. He gives ah, just war okay. theory. I mean, he he's quoting Aristotle, of course, because he quotes Aristotle throughout the Summa. But sure. um, it, it's, it looked like a pretty good cross-section of the things Thomas talked about to me. Enough so that I, I'm organizing the class thematically rather than chronologically, and we're doing Aquinas on three different days. Oh, that's cool. So, so I mean, it's, it's a pretty broad selection of, of topics. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sounds like a good book. But I don't good want that on the desert island. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't, you won't have to bring it, because Nathan has it. Nathan has the summa. Yeah, have you read the summa, David? Um, I well, like Nathan, I've re- I've read bits. Um, I've read bits that were relevant to things I was doing at the time. Uh, I bought the shorter summa. Oh, the I compendium. Thought, yeah, I've read that. Yeah, yeah, I bought the compendium, and I got about got about a quarter of the way into that when other kinds of things intruded them right. uh, intruded on me, and I lost kind of lost the thread that's that's the thing about thomas is you you kind of have to keep the thread going yeah yeah um and actually that oh sorry david the the compendium was actually one of the books on my comprehensive exam list so that that's Uh, actually the thomas that i know best but I, i i will also say that when i bought my sony reader uh which listeners if if you're not familiar with that device. It was the predecessor to the Barnes and Noble Nook and the Amazon Kindle. Uh, I bought it largely so that I could download the Summa Theologica and not drop $150 on the five-volume set. Nathan, I want to let you know that when I when I wrote my lectures for that philosophy class, when we talk about the Summa and we talk about its immense length, that's the that's the real life example I give. I say that nice. it's so long that you 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 would rather buy an e-reader. Than, uh-huh. <laughs> than buy the uh, print print edition. Nice. So, so you get you get brought up. I have to find find a way to drop grubs into the class as well. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what book is cool. is that number four? Yeah, that was number four. Number five, uh, and I'm I'm making a big jump here. I had a you know a, a twelfth or a thirteenth century, a fourteenth century, and a couple seventeenth century books. Now I'm going to jump all the way up to the late twentieth century. Uh, to pick up Walter Brueggemann's uh, Theology of the Old Testament. Uh, it is a 700-page Theology of the Old Testament. If I've got my Bible there, I want to be in conversation with Brueggemann. Uh, he is the person, listeners, if you like the way that I think about the Bible, then he's one of the definite people you've got to credit with it. If you think that I'm insufferable, he's one of the people you got to blame. Uh, because <laughs> Brueggemann's central approach, I'll call it an approach rather than a thesis, 
uh, is that you ought to treat the books of the Bible as saying exactly what they say, and if that means that books of the Bible are in conversation with each other rather than singing in a choir together, uh, that means you've got to read them that way. And, you know, his book is broken up into primary testimony, uh, testimony in crisis, counter-testimony, uh, and testimony of restoration. Uh, and really, those four divisions, you know, they're not, those aren't the four canonical divisions of the book. They're not even chronological divisions. But those four approaches to reading the text of the Bible have really informed the way that I teach the Bible in churches and in college classes. They've informed the way that I read them myself. They really have just kind of shaped me as a reader and a teacher and a preacher of the Bible. So, I mean, it's a book that I could definitely stand to read again. It's been about 10 years since I've read it. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've gone back to it and looked up relevant passages since then, but I, I could stand to read that one again. It sounds interesting. I've never read Brueggemann. He he is one of those nauseatingly prolific writers. He publishes about two or three books a year. Uh, <laughs> so he teach I mean, too? Uh, he's an emeritus professor now, but he was publishing that fast even when he was teaching. That makes me sick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although one of my colleagues at Emmanuel College, uh, Scott Ellington, actually studied with him, uh, and he said that, you know, in person he is exactly that nauseating uh he would you know he would bring a 400 page book to class and he would say you know uh this book has an interesting thesis you know i read through it while i was watching the democratic primary debates last night i I wish he'd write a book on how you can be like that yeah yeah (laughs) i don't think you can read a book that teaches you how to be like that you hear about you know like harold bloom supposedly can read 300 pages an hour with yeah, almost yeah. perfect comprehension and, and you just wonder i mean whatever you think about harold bloom as a as a critic you just you just have to be in awe of people who can do things like that oh absolutely yeah yeah well anyway guys i want to hear some of your list so grubs why don't you go next sure um i'm gonna start a bit further back in time uh <gasps> I know, I know. You're shocked, aren't you? Um, uh, the Nathan has so far. Uh, I'm going to start with Augustine and his confessions. So Augustine, his years are 354 to 430 AD. Mm-hmm. Um, and first question uh, one might be thinking is, why not City of God? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to choose confessions because confessions is... Uh, is about an introspective and interior life that's reflecting on um, the way the the way things that have happened in life, the way experiences have have influenced uh, Augustine's inner man mm-hmm. and the relationship of his inner man to his maker. Um, yeah, it's a book about interiority. It's a book about thinking thinking about your 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 mental and spiritual and psychological development. Um, as such, uh, I, I tried to think: what would I want with me on an island? Would I want the Augustine of City of God, or would I want the Augustine of Confessions? And I think I would rather have the Augustine of Confessions because 
he he models a way a way of living within yourself and thinking about um, thinking about self that isn't so completely uh, narcissistic isn't so isn't completely solipsistic in the way um, I am told that people in isolation can become. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though it's this, uh, even though it's a, a psychological or spiritual biography, uh, autobiography, um, it's actually uh, the, the entire thing is 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 a dialogue between Augustine and and God. Well, um, well, it's one half of a dialogue, right? God doesn't talk. Back. Right. 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 It's a single sided um, phone call. <laughs> right. Um, but but even so, you know, Augustine is also in conversation uh, with the Scripture. You know, so you know maybe that's that's providing the other half of the dialogue, um, but uh, you know, just trying to think what what would my what would my needs be on an island, um, spiritually, psychologically, etc. And I think Augustine's Confessions are a good thing for that. Um, you know, I just love the I, first half of that book, and then once he gets into the more abstract speculation toward the end, <laughs> I just have to close it and put it back up on the shelf. I'm not sure I've ever read that the the entirety of that book about memory. I don't remember which which number ten. Um, the, the Confessions is a weird book because he's obviously inventing the autobiography, and yet he imperfectly invents it. It ends up having to do abstract theology at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, well, I I actually kind of love that. I, I love that that his 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 autobiography leads him into that. Mm-hmm. Um, that for I mean it it feels really strange to us and it feels strange to me, but I I, I think it's fascinating that that didn't feel strange to him. Right. You start out telling your own story and then end up spending the ha- second half of the book reflecting on the nature of story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. No, what, My, uh, what, I, what I love about that book, David, is that it is theology done in the second person. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I mean, that is such a a corrective to so much of the theology of the last 400 years or so. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can thank Aquinas for taking it in the other direction. Well, true enough, true enough. Because as late as Anselm, the, the theologians were still addressing God directly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, yeah, there's yeah, a lot of, a lot of that uh, third person reflection that then becomes prayer, mm-hmm. um, which I, I I think is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your second book, David? Um, well, again, uh, choosing you know, uh, guy guy living on his own and presume I don't know why I'm on this uh, deserted island. Uh, presumably, it wasn't circumstances that I chose, and therefore I'm going to bring Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, Boethius, about 480 to about 524. Um, Boethius uh, is writing a book after having lost everything, and uh, shortly thereafter would lose his life. And uh, it's it's a book that. Uh, basically reflects on uh, what does it mean when we lose everything. Uh, 
You know, it asks the same kinds of questions. Well, it, it asks that question that gets addressed to Conan. What is best in life? <laughs> um, you know, it's, did, did it, Jay Leno it, ask him that, or I, I don't? I, I don't think I saw that episode. No, uh. I. Sorry, I'm I'm just imagining Conan the Barbarian in my mind doing things as a result of that. Um, anyhow, um. Yeah, it asks, you know, why why do bad things happen? Why do changes of, uh, well, changes of fortune happen? Reflects on all on all of those kinds of things, um, and really, uh, Boethius has uh, has been called the the last of uh, the last classical thinker and the first of the medieval thinkers, mm-hmm. and he he really kind of digests a lot of the best of classical philosophy in into this work right and so if i can't bring all of them with me i'll bring boethius's uh you know i think christian uh digested version in there with me uh-huh. and there's there's enough bits of there's enough bits of the rest of it that uh, that i can reflect on that as well so uh, right. i invite i invite boethius to my island <laughs> Now, now, David, if you're willing to cheat a little bit, if you bring the uh, Loeb Classical Library volume with Consolation of Philosophy in it, you also get uh, Boethius's five theological treatises. Ooh, I didn't think about that. Okay, I'm totally cheating now. That's and, what I'm and, and you get them in English and Latin. But then you got to read that tiny little Loeb print. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't like those Loeb editions. Oh, I, I live on those things, man. I, I love them. Oh, I like a big book. Hmm. Is there a, is there like a Riverside Boethius? Is that, a, <laughs> is that a thing? Not that I am aware of. Uh, Riverside needs to do more things. There you go. Anyhow. So yeah, Boethius, Consolation of the Philosophy. Um, and so much of what comes after him uh, is in conversation with Boethius as well. So, yeah. um, you know, when, when we get to you know, when you're reading your Shakespeare, Nathan, when you're reading your, well, Milton or or basically anyone else. Thomas, Thomas <laughs> Aquinas. Yeah, you're, when you're reading your Tom, um, you know, Boethius is there talking back to him too. So, mm-hmm. you know, here's another guy who, who fits right into that big old conversation. Oh, sure, sure. All right. What's, uh, what's number three for you, David? Number three, um, I'm going to bring the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict of Nursia, uh, a contemporary of Boethius. Only you um, would bring a guidebook for living in community when you're living alone on an island. <laughs> well, it's, it's not just a guidebook for it's – a, it's a guidebook for community that was designed, uh, was designed for people who would rather be hermits. Uh, the the hermetic ideal um, when Benedict was 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 writing this rule the the ideal was being a hermit being a monk was second best mm-hmm. um, but uh, it, it, there seems to be you know I, I I'm I'm not the world's most renowned uh, historian of of you know the aromatic life, but, uh, it's, I, I think Benedict with his rule, uh, brought a, a rigor to monasticism 
that that led to it being the uh, the preferred cloistered life, not being the solitary. Um, but it's uh, again, if you're, uh, it's also about um, setting up a society, setting up a rule of life and a way of life in a uh, in a community community that has withdrawn itself from the way of the world. Um, you know, he he Benedict sees the importance uh, when you, when you withdraw from society of not just uh, living like a beast, um, eating when you're hungry, uh, sleeping when you're tired, uh, doing nothing more than caring for your bodily needs. Um, you know, he believes in the worth of of labor, of uh, of rigor, of having regular routines, of of work and rest and eating, and most of all, of worship. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, if you're not part of a society that's going to regulate your life by asking you to bend to the will of others, um, another thing that helps prevent this, well, solipsism, which is so dangerous to people, um, so dangerous to, to just human morality, um, mm-hmm. you need obedience to a rule. Um, and so I'm going to bring Benedict with me to help keep me in order. Also, he's got a lot of scripture in there too. So, so he's, he's a guy that I can talk to about the Bible and not always agree either. But I, w- I, I won't make you guys live Benedict, I'm afraid. <laughs> I won't make you guys live by the rule though. You, you don't have to. I mean, unless you really want to. Well, that's good because then we'd have to establish who's going to be doing the beating. That, that's, <laughs> that's one thing I definitely remember about the rule of Benedict is people get beat on a whole bunch. Oh, that's true. That's true. I would, um, I would adapt that section. All right, <laughs> See, I'm, fair I'm, enough. I'm in, I'm in conversation with Benedict, not total abuse. <laughs> um, I'm also going to bring uh, John Dunn with me. Um, there isn't a Riverside Dunn, so far as I know. Uh, I don't know why there's not a Riverside Dunn. Um, but there is a major works put out by the Oxford World Classics, mm-hmm. which includes um, not all but most of the best of his poetry, as well as um, a lot of his prose, um, sermons and uh, essays and things of that nature. Um, I want to bring Dunn with me, um, well, First, obviously, for his his later life works, um, I want his, You know, I, I I want someone preaching to me, and Dunn is as good as any as as anyone else I've ever read. He's a he's a fantastic preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, also, his soul, his holy sonnets are are nice little sermons right in themselves. He writes some of the, I think, some of the best Christian poetry that rhymes out there. Um, <laughs> Yes, note, note the hat tip to Milton. Uh, um, but also, uh, I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring all of it because I want his earlier stuff too, um, because it's beautiful, uh, because he's a metaphysical poet and therefore um, functions as you know, kind of metaphysical language puzzles, um, which that's just good exercise for the brain. Uh, also they're beautiful and also, um, there aren't going to be any women on this island. So, 
uh, I'm going to let John Dunn bring the women. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's good for the hermit to forget that God, all, that God made um, the other gender as well. And even if I'm not permitted to be there, I shouldn't be permitted to forget that they existed. And so, um, I'm going to let Dunn remind me of that. Any re any reactions? You want Dunn on the island, or is he a little too, a little too racy sometimes? Oh no, I love Dunn. I was just thinking yeah. about his sermons and how long they are, and then I started <laughs> thinking about what it must have been like to have the attention span to sit through one of them. Oh sure, mm -hmm. sure. And take I... notes because I mean the copies of Dunn's sermons we have are reconstructed from parishioner sermon notes, are they not? Yeah, yeah. Not to mention Martin Luther's table talk. Not to mention. Aristotle's rhetoric, not to mention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, the the consciousness of human beings before television is something that is inaccessible even to my imagination. Mm. Unless you're Walter <laughs> Brueggemann. Yep. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Harold Bloom. Uh, cool. Um, and then I'll round it out with um, uh, Dorothy Sayers' novel *Gaudy Night*. Um, this is. Uh, published in 1935. Any, either of you guys read Gaudy Night? No, I haven't. Nope. Uh, any of you read any of the Lord Peter Whimsy Mystery novels? Nope. Not yet. At some uh, point I will, I promise. Uh, I've never read anything uh, by Sayers, except her translation of uh, Dante. Mm. I, I love them. They're, fan they're, they're, they're fantastic. One, I, I love mystery novels. But they're great novels. The characters are uh, the characters are amazing, and she's she's a brilliant writer. Um, Gaudy Knight is the second to last novel in that uh, in that series focused on on that one character, Lord Peter Whimsey. Except the protagonist of Gaudy Knight is not Lord Peter Whimsey himself, but Harriet Vane, the woman who he courts through most of the series of books but uh who does not relent um mm -hmm. through most of those as well mainly because she uh, the 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 issue in there uh that's a tension between the two of them is that he's an aristocrat he's independently wealthy and he's very very famous uh whereas she is a very intelligent woman a professional writer um, college educated and she is afraid of having her personhood subsumed by his hmm. um, and is afraid that that's, that that's secretly what he wants that he wants to make her his and that she will lose herself when that happens hmm. um, Gaudy Night is the novel in which um in which they uh, in, in which they do they do come together and at the end of it uh, are uh, are engaged. Um, like the last paragraph is her saying yes. Hmm. But the novel is about uh, it's about the life of the mind, particularly the academic life. Uh, she's returning back to uh, her woman's college in Oxford for a gaudy night. Uh, it's a basically a, a reunion. Um, and so she meet, she's meeting a lot of other Lady Dons, all of whom have their own uh, 
their own philosophies about the life of the mind and particularly of, of being a woman who is an, an academic. Um, and then also interplayed with that is uh, the, how, how, do, how does uh, a woman who is an academic relate to, relate to men, not only in academia, but also um, relationally uh, in friendship and in marriage. And, and that's, you know, that, that's this, this constant th theme through the book is um, can, can a woman who is devoted to the life of the mind also devote herself to, to being married? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot, of, a lot of voices in the book who think no and a lot of them who think yes. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one that I want to bring with me because I married a woman who is an academic and a woman whose personhood has not been subsumed in my greater, more amazingly radiant personhood. <laughs> um, I can't bring my wife with me, but I can bring Gaudy Knight with me. And uh, again, if I'm going to bring Dunn to remind me that God made woman and that was a great thing, um, I bring Dorothy Sayers and Gaudy Knight with me uh, to remind me um, what in woman I fell in love with and what in woman I should still value and what in my, um, in my sinfulness and isolation uh, can become overwhelmed by the purely biological. Um, I want to keep, I would want to keep Gaudy Knight, um, with me in order, in order to, in order to prevent me from falling into that sort of knee jerk reaction of a St. Anthony of the desert. All right. Um, right, right. Which would, you know, think of the female and then try to chase it off with a stick. <laughs> anyway, that's why I'm going to bring Gaudy Knight with me. Cause I want, I, I want to bring woman with me and remind me of, of woman and all of its beautiful personhood and and mind and difference from me. So yeah, that's why Gaudy Knight. And now I stop talking. Michael, do you read mystery novels? Um, I've read some. I read I read the uh, Father Brown mysteries. I've read Sherlock Holmes. Okay, all right. Oh, of course, but I I I've never read Sayers. All right, mm. I I just find it fascinating because I mean so many academics in literature I know read mystery novels for a, a hobby and it's something that I've never really thrown myself into that you know I and you know unfortunately my my own sort of non-academic reading is almost always middle-brow quasi-popular theology books which probably makes me a a sick puppy in a lot of ways but I <laughs> um it's just interesting I'm at you know I, I I always have a great deal of respect for people who you know, continue to read narrative, I, I'll admit, I mean, by the time I get done teaching a semester, I'm usually ready to read something more um, expository, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. hmm. I think you, I think you would, I think, I think both of you guys would enjoy Gaudy Night. Um, okay. I mean, if, if you can imagine, imagine reading a novel in which a scene in which the source of psychological tension between the female protagonist and the male who is courting her um, comes when they are completely separated. They aren't together even in the room, but when she discovers that the octave of a sonnet she'd started writing and set aside, he had finished with a sestet of his own. <laughs> and that 
and that's a that's a moment of amazing psychological tension in a relationship. Is this the sort of thing you and Katie fight over, David? No, it's 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 not. <laughs> because I because I would never presume to finish her sonnet. <laughs> I know better because I read Gaudy Night. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, my first book is a series of books. It is Plato's Complete Works, a pretentious choice. But if you were going to have one philosopher uh, for the rest of your life, I figure Plato is a, is a, about as good a choice as you could get. Yeah. Of, of course, he wrote on a very wide range of topics. And unlike Aristotle, he did so in a way that is eminently readable and exciting. I mean, some are more readable than others. Uh all, I have read most of Plato. I can say I've understood about 8% of it, so uh, it would be nice to have the time to read it again uh, without distraction and get deeper into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I second the choice. Yeah, I was actually yeah. surprised neither of you did it. But when you only have five books, I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. Books. I mean, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to narrow it down. <laughs> Well, one of, one of the reasons why I'm bringing Augustine with me is because I think he did a good job of, of, in uh, of taking taking what I think of as the best in Plato. I'd also um, like to point out that somewhat incredibly, I have the oldest book on this list. <laughs> <laughs> well played, well played. Yay. Yeah, I, I yeah I got hung up in the 14th and the 17th centuries. I'm afraid. Hey. <laughs> and that's okay. Most of my stuff, in fact, the rest of my stuff is from the 19th and 20th. So, mm. S- skipping forward, uh, what, 4,000 years? No. I apparently <laughs> can't even do math. <laughs> skipping ahead 2,000 years, I have uh, a book I've been talking about quite quite a lot on the blog and on the uh, podcast lately, which is uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Uh, I-, I have talked about this book ad nauseum. I think it is probably. The perfect American novel in that it is messy, uh, poorly put together, and somehow brilliant anyway. I've read it five or six times, and every time I read it, I've, I discover something new about it. I, uh, I think it is really the American novel. It tells you quite a bit about what it means to be an American in Melville's day and in any other. It has a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of emotion, a great deal of tension, and... Um, I, I don't know. If, if I had to reread a novel over and over again, again, Moby Dick is a better choice than a lot of them. Have either of you read mm-hmm. Moby Dick? I have read most of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure anybody's I took a read Melville the whole thing. <laughs> I took a Melville class for no other reason than to finish reading Moby Dick. Yep. Did you get hung up on the Cytology chapters or the the abstract philosophical stuff or what? Um... I was actually a little bit. I was actually uh, somewhat disappointed by the class because when I got in there, I found out that he hadn't actually signed the whole novel. Oh. Um. Really, but, in a Melville uh, class, he didn't assign the entirety of Moby Dick. Well, this is because we also read. Uh, uh, we read Typey. We read Omu. We read Redburn. We read Billy Budd. We read Pierre. Ugh. Oh, talk about a terrible. Uh, we read. Um, <laughs> Oh, a lot of the shorter stories. Confidence Man. Is that right? yeah, Confidence Man's a novel. It's 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 one the postmodern critics have kind of picked up on. I haven't read it. I've heard it's pretty yeah. dreadful. I think but we read that. And how from, could you uh, teach a Melville class without doing the entirety of Moby Dick? 
Um, he 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 had his he had his particular interests, and he focused us on the bits that that allowed him to talk about those things. So the thing is, that book doesn't work that way. If you if you don't take it as a, you can't skip around in it. If you don't take it as a whole, you're missing it. Yeah. Well, and I don't say that I, about very many books, but. I mean that is definitely true of my. In fact, if you're, uh, that was one of the things I took offense at in Nathaniel Philbrick's book that I reviewed on the blog a few weeks ago, is that he says you can, you don't need to read the whole thing. All you need is a sentence, a mere phrase, which is, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous, a mere phrase. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's the pious crap that people write about Shakespeare, that mm. every, every phrase is somehow literarily infallible. And it's like <laughs> no, he he wrote some duds. <laughs> and I, and I, yes. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that I, I have read every sentence of Moby Dick because it is it, it is a book that kind of deals with you rather than you reading it. But uh, you know, I recognize that that's my fault and not yeah not something to be pleased about. Yeah, that that was actually one of the great disappointments in the one American lit class I took at the University of Georgia is that instead of Moby Dick, we read Pierre because the. The professor said, "Well, you know, I figure you've all read Moby Dick already." And I thought, "No, I haven't. That's that's why I wanted to take a 19th century American lit class." P- Pierre does demonstrate how lucky Melville got with Moby Dick cuz Pierre does kind yeah. of the same thing and it's just I mean, it's one of the it's one of the most infamously flopped novels of all time. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's just a bad book. Yeah. Now, it's because, a mess too, but it's just messy. Right, right. right. And Moby and, Dick yeah. is a beautiful mess. Yucky. <laughs> yeah, but but on the other hand, and this is my hermeneutics of suspicion coming out because the professor had published on Scarlet Letter, we did read Scarlet Letter for which, me for the fourth time, which everybody would have read in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Ugh. Anyway. I'm not sure I've read Scarlet Letter in a class. Anyway, moving on um, from the greatest American novel to probably the greatest novel in any language, uh, Dostoevsky's *The Butters Karamazov*. Nathan, Yay. you and I fought over which one of us was going to include this on our list. Yes, yes. Uh, I I cannot, and it's it's great for a lot of the same reasons *Moby Dick* is great, which is that it contains these multitudes. There's, you could separate that novel, which is what 800, 900 pages, depending on your translation. Uh, you, a, a, th- a thousand in the edition I taught this semester. You can you could separate it into about twelve two hundred page novels, and yeah, you, yeah. every one of them you would say was the greatest novel ever written, um, <laughs> and and yet somehow when they're combined it becomes this thing of just enormous importance and beauty and it's mm-hmm. disturbing. I, I mean I've I've talked many times about how the my favorite chapter in anything anywhere is the rebellion chapter of Brothers Karamazov yeah. where Ivan Ivan excuse me. <laughs> explains why he he won't worship a god who allows human suffering. I I think it's a it's a much more impassioned and interesting anti-theodicy than anything you find in some in somebody like Bart Ehrman or or any of the other uh, anti-theodicians. Yeah. What do you love about that novel, Nathan? Oh, I mean, I love so many things about it. I mean, one of the things is that it has a compelling and an interesting central Christian pr- protagonist. Yes, probably the greatest, the best written Christian in all of literature. Yeah, and in fact, I, I didn't end up putting this essay question on my final because I feared backlash. <laughs> but I almost, who's the better Christian, Alyosha or Jesus from The Last Temptation of Christ? <laughs> <laughs> 
I thought better of it after I had written it. I deleted it. <laughs> the, the better angels of your nature. Yes, yeah, or, or self-preservation instinct, one of the two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, really Alyosha, I mean, is just one of my favorite characters in literature, period. Uh, Dimitri, I, it, it's funny, I mean, and this is a mark of a great novel, I think. As I have gotten older, I understand Dimitri more, yeah. which disturbs me a little bit. Because <laughs> when, <laughs> when I first read him when I was 22 years old, I thought he was just the walking urge. And I thought he wasn't a real literary character at all, but... You know, having taught it now as a 34-year-old middle-aged father of two, uh, all of a sudden I can understand him a bit more. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's really those wonderful characters that I love. Uh, I mean, one great testimony to it is that, you know, one uh, junior English major in my class, uh, when we got to the last day, she said she got to the end and she felt like there ought to be more to the novel. And, you know, I said, you know, for... For a thousand-page novel, that's something to say. <laughs> that, that's an interesting comment because, as someone who studies 20th-century literature, I always think of that novel as wrapped up so tidily. Uh huh. Well, having it having it end properly and wishing it that it could have gone on are not necessarily that, mutually exclusive things, right? Have you well, actually, that, that was one that was one of the essay questions they could choose on the exam was uh, write the ending of Yvonne's story. Yeah, it's true. Yvonne and I, and I, and I got some out. good essays out of it. So, sorry, hmm. go ahead, Michael. David, have you read Brothers K? Nope. Set aside three months of your life to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's yeah I, I tend to like these books that kind of deal with you rather than you reading them, and Brothers Karamazov is another one that does that. Right. Right. Although it's it's, I think, much less messy than Moby Dick. It's much better constructed. The, the language is certainly easier. I, I remember reading yeah, somebody... Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. So, somebody who said that he wanted to learn Russian so he could read Dostoevsky in the original, and he was talking to a Russian friend of his, and the guy said, don't bother, he writes like a newspaper. So apparently the prose is not at all lofty. It's not Tolstoy. Uh-huh. It's, it's very... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I read the that. Constance Garnett translation, so it feels a little loftier. Uh-huh. Well, moving on, all of us have picked a theologian, and I have picked also picked a theologian, and so I, I've put on my list uh, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. Now, that is, what, a 14-volume set? And I think yeah, that, that is takes probably up a bookshelf. So <laughs> I, am, uh, I am including his, uh, the, the small 300-page Church Dogmatics, a selection. Um, okay. I like Bart for some of the same reasons that David puts Boethius on there, which is he synthesizes a lot of secular thinkers whom I like and he he puts them into a new Christian context. So I don't have Heidegger on here. I don't have Sartre on here. But I don't mm-hmm. need them because Bart <laughs> Bart takes them and filters <laughs> them through Christianity. And I do think he filters them. I know that a criticism some evangelicals make of Bart is that he is too much Sartre Christ, and too little center. Bible. Christ, yeah. the center. <laughs> um, I'm going to suggest those well, people are wrong. Yeah. Well, I, people I like, say the same thing about Augustine and Plato. R- you know. Right. Right. It, yeah. It's an easy criticism to make of somebody you don't like. Or Thomas and Aristotle. Right. Mm. And I, I think one one of the great things about Bart is the way he walks a line between fundamentalism and liberalism. He is neither. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in, that, in that sense, I think he is thoroughgoingly 
evangelical, even if the evangelical church is at times loath to uh, embrace him. As am I. I mean, there's things in Bart I don't like, but I like uh, I like arguing with him. I I disagree with him in ways that are interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Unlike um, unlike some other theologians. <laughs> And, fi- and finally, my uh, my fifth book is John Updike's Rabbit Angstrom, which I'm cheating a little bit again. I don't I don't know if there's a single volume of all four. I know there are two. That, large there volumes. is one. I've got it on my bookshelf, and someday oh, okay. I will read it. <laughs> well, that that's what I pick, and I, I pick because of because of its grounding in time and place. Um, I I, I th- those novels are interesting to me because of the way Updike, and not only because of the way Updike brings in the 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 kind of cultural world around him but at least in part because of that so you read the o- the only one of those books i would have been alive for is rabbit at rest and it makes me feel like an 8 year old again because i would have been 8 when the events of that book take place because he mm-hmm. he so brings in the popular culture uh, of the day into the time that you you're transported into oh, it. Yeah, of yeah. course it's an interesting story it's interesting it's kind of a redemption story in reverse you're watching a man fall further away from grace in every volume and yet he seems largely unaware of that and uh updike maintains an ironic distance from this character who in a lot of ways is like him but who ends up being i hope quite different from him. <laughs> right uh, i don't like the second volume very much if anybody is reading through rabbit angstrom and you don't like rabbit redux uh that's because it's an ugly violent book keep going Rabbit, Rabbit is Rich and Rabbit at Rest are much better. I, I love those books, uh, and I, I can't imagine being without them. Yeah, I, I, I've not read the Rabbit Angstrom novels yet. I, I, those are definitely novels I want to read when this dissertation is over and sure. so on and so forth. Uh, but I have read In the Beauty of the Lilies, which is a 1996 novel, mm-hmm. and something that's just striking about it is precisely what you said, Michael, the pop culture that infuses the novel. You know, the fact that, in, you know, in the very last chapter, the, the, the central character makes a reference to watching Roseanne on TV and how he just loves Roseanne because she tells it how it is. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, in fact, I think there's a reference to Roseanne in uh, Rabbit at Rest as well. The rabbit doesn't oh, is like there really? It. Okay. Doesn't like Roseanne. <laughs> he doesn't like Cheers either. He calls, uh, he calls Sam Malone that Cro-Magnane guy. <laughs> and the other interesting thing about the rabbit novels is you have in rabbit a character who is not educated not particularly intelligent and yet updike of course is educated and and is intelligent and so you you end up getting this commentary on the world that could not possibly come from a guy like rabbit angstrom and yet because updike is his puppeteer it does so mm-hmm. they're insightful novels in a way that they really shouldn't be I think it's interesting that that it, I I haven't read them, but what, based on what you've sound like, it, it sounds like you're basically being able to bring a lot of Americana with you to the island as well. Right. As well. Right. Mm-hmm. They're they're very they, they, like Moby Dick. They bring in a lot of stuff from outside them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're probably the least hermetic novels I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> uh, Modern Library, I believe, is the printing house that published Rabbit Angstrom as one volume. Yeah, and they they did the two the two volumes of the uh, two two books each as well. Mm-hmm. I don't need them. 
I mean, for my daily life, I have the four volumes separately. I don't usually like books that contain more than one book within covers, unless it's like the complete Plato or something. I don't like um, volumes that that combine multiple novels, although it's nice for the, when you have to do something like these Desert Island picks. Yeah. <laughs> or, or if you're on the road. Yeah. Although you no, choose true. your uh, Sony reader, don't you? Uh, not as much as I used to. I mean, actually, I've, I've, I've got the Kindle app on my iPod Touch now, so I, I use it when I'm out and about waiting in line at the bank. Mm. Well, that is, uh, we've given you 15 books, uh, and then some. Uh-huh. <laughs> do, do either of you want to make any kind of grandiose statement about the nature of these Desert Island games? I mean, I didn't prompt you to do that, so. Go ahead, David. You go first. I think it's kind of fun uh, the way the, the the way that we've chosen uh, the books and the way that uh, the the kinds of considerations that that shape um, choosing the books. Even if you're not a deserted island, um, you can do a whole lot worse um, when you're deciding what to read than to consider um, which author is going to best interact with and distill uh, the thought of the eras that he draws upon and their thought. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who, who am I going to best have a conversation about God with? Yeah. I mean, you, can, you can do a whole lot worse when you're selecting your books than to, think that, than, than to have those kinds of considerations in mind. And I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's fun that I think, I, I think we all kind of landed on those, landed on those ideas. Um, but yeah. You can, you can do you can do a whole lot worse than by using that as your your guiding light for what books you choose to read. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that you know mine uh, includes not only which text would I like to be in conversation with, but also around which text have I had the best conversations with people in my own memory. Mm, uh, so yeah. I mean, a, a lot of these books that I picked, and then the one that Michael and I fought over, are books that I have taught and had good experiences teaching. Uh, and it, it's largely because, you know, the, the students that I remember best are the ones who have spurred me to think new things about these texts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's one of the great joys of teaching, I think. Well, fair enough. We, uh, if you, if you think we, uh, included something wrongly, if you think we spoke ridiculously about something, if you <laughs> if you uh, just loved our picks, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Nathan, what are we doing next week? Next week, it'll be our Christmas episode. And this Christmas, uh, because every December I become a Charles Dickens fanatic, uh, we're going to spend our episode talking about A Christmas Carol. Then we're going to eat Yorkshire pudding and roast goose. There you go. <laughs> you guys have a priced goose? It's like 40 bucks for a goose. Oh, is it really? I've, I've never priced one, I'll admit that. Um, yeah. we, we also, that'll be our last episode of the season, but we should have, I think, three special episodes that are just one of us each over mm -hmm. the Christmas break. And uh, I, I won't reveal what those are, but you do have those to look forward to. Those will just be on a regular feed. Right. 
In the meantime, as I said, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. You can sign up for our forums, christianhumanist.org slash chf. Remember, if you are signing up for the forums, you need to give us your name in the format first name, space, last name. I don't care if those are your real names or not. Uh, I wonder how long until somebody actually registers first name, space, last name. I think you just just shortened the span, Michael. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, for David Grubbs, for Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Bye.